Hello and welcome to Security Leaders, the podcast where we speak to security managers, chief security officers, specialists, and professionals from across the security spectrum. My name is Neil Sutton, editor of Canadian Security Magazine. My guest for this episode is Alan Bell, president of Globe Risk International and an expert in international counterterrorism. Alan formed Globe Risk International in 1995, providing crisis management planning and security consulting for a broad range of clients across the world. Prior to his security career, Alan spent more than 20 years in specialized military service. A security professional with an extremely diverse background and many stories to tell, he is currently in the process of writing his memoirs. When I spoke to Alan recently, we talked about that process, as well as some of the changes he has observed in the professional security industry over the course of his career. First, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Commissioners. There can be an over-reliance on technology as a silver bullet to resolve all the ills. Technology is just but a tool. Uh, it really comes down to the operators and, and having those individuals understand the role that they play, not only for client safety and security, but the security and safety of, of you know the community as, as a whole. I'm Don Thompson, Director of Operations for Commissioners Hamilton. If you'd like to learn more about Commissioners, please visit commissioners.ca. Welcome, Alan, to the podcast. Thank you much. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I think the best place to start is. Can you tell us a bit about your military career and how that prepared you for security? Yeah, well, I was very fortunate because I had a very eclectic military career that included more than 15 years of specialized military experience related to global issues. And during this time, I was involved in counter-terrorist operations throughout the world. Whilst I was serving with UK Special Forces, which included the Royal Marine Commandos, 14 Intelligence Company, and 22 SAS, uh, I had become adept at uh, con- conducting international security and counterterrorism operations. So that really gave me the, the sort, of, sort of the way in. And when I left uh, the, the uh, UK Special Forces, I basically had the equivalent of a PhD in security because there was nothing I hadn't done and either set things up or taken them down or whatever the case may be. So when I stepped off the plane, when I came to Canada, I had quite a lot of experience, and the only place I could really look to use experience is in the security uh, industry in Canada, which was, there was we're talking 1998, 89 time. So, you know, there were so many security companies, I didn't know anything about them or anything else. And then CSIS offered me a job because that was about the time CSIS were going from the security service to CSIS. And I was asked if I'd like to join CSIS. And, I'd spent a lot of my time working with intelligence agencies in the UK, so consequently, I didn't want to go back to that because it's more writing and less boots on the ground, and that's that's basically what I wanted to do. But when I first came over, I took over as the director of a court, the corporate resource group, and the strange thing about that was I dealt with everything that was not regular security. I, I dealt with surveillance. I dealt with uh, close protection. I dealt with electronic countermeasures. There was no cyber issues in those days, obviously. Uh, so I took on all the strange things. It wasn't normal garden variety uh, security work, guards and things like that. I That came to my department. And we were turning over a lot of money in that area. Uh, and I used to joke to people and say, look, what I know about business, you can get on the back of a postage stamp. And that was true. I mean, I spent my entire life in the military. So when I came to Canada, I didn't have any experiences working in private sectors. I'd never dealt with senior VIPs unless I'd been protecting them in different countries around the world. So I had to learn from the bottom and work my way up, which is exactly uh, what I did. 
So as I said, I stayed with the company for four years, learned everything I could. Fortunately enough, I reported to the president of the company and I spent a lot of time with him, going to meetings with him, seeing how he operated, how he got information from clients to find out what the, they really needed and doing research. He was the person that taught me to research a company before you actually go to it because you want to know what their problems are. And especially when I started working all over the world, I needed to know mining companies and gas and oil companies are operating in hostile environments around the world, what problems they had, because then I was armed with what I could deliver to them, tell them we can improve your ability to do various different things. And that impressed them because not many people will actually look into a company's background and figure out where they're working, what they're doing, and what their problems have been in the last six months to, to a year. So that was that was really it. Uh, as I said, all I did when I joined, started my own company, Globrisk International, was I just swapped over. Only this time, I started looking more internationally than domestically, uh, because a lot of things were happening around the world. There was trouble in a lot of countries. The the uh, wars in uh, the Middle East were starting to heat up, and everything else. We hadn't done a great deal of work. Afghanistan came in and then Africa started to happen as well. So all those things sort of happened in a time when I was ready to work internationally. And the first three and a half to four years I, I set up GRI, uh, I wasn't doing any work in Canada whatsoever. All my work was either in the Middle East or Africa or in, or, uh, in uh, South America. Uh, so that's basically what, where I got my, my, my boots dirty. We've seen security change a lot in the last 10 to 15 years, but what do you think has been the most fundamental change in terms of the approach to corporate security? It's been systems, cameras, and all the other various different things. I mean, you know, it's it, it's come on gangbusters because now you've got departments that deal with cyber, you've got departments that deal with CTV cameras, you have departments that deal with access control. And all these things were there, but they were so basic, you know, the door opened and the alarm went off, et cetera. Now it's very sophisticated. You know, you've got every single one of your uh, access control points on a, on, a, on a TV screen and the security guard is watching that. So he's got to be on the ball. He can't afford to, you know, see someone comes through a door and hasn't keyed himself in or he's tailgated somebody coming in. He's got to be able to spot that. So it's become more technical over, over the years and, and people thrive in that because, you know, when you look at a security guard, say, 15 years ago, he was just a guy who was in a uniform and he just walked around and did whatever he did trying to stop people. Well, as I said, we learned straight off that a lot of people, a lot of these security guards, they watch people tailgate. They watch people come in without ID. Well, now you're not supposed to be able to do that unless you tailgate. So they're standing there watching. And if three guys suddenly walk in, the first guy comes as a an access card and then all of a sudden three guys walk past him and go through their access card for a start you don't know who's in the building especially if you're dealing with a big pharmaceutical company or dealing with the crown corporation or you're dealing with the bank of canada and all these other things so so that's made it more people have got to be more alert if you're if you're a big man or a woman you know and you looked as if you could take care of yourself you're a security guard now you've got to have a bit, more, a bit more training, there's more qualifications, the CPP and all the other various different qualifications. They've come in over the years, but there was none of this, you know, when I was sort of starting out in the private security industry. So that's really come on gangbusters. And of course, because we've we've sort of grown up with it, that, that is GRI has grown up with this, 
uh, we know what we're looking for when we go and look, look at a, a large international corporation because it's exactly the same. Every single one is the same. Do you have security? One of the first questions I always ask is, can I have a look at all your policies and procedures and your planning processes, please? And they go, why? I said, we want to see what you've got in place and when you last use them and all the other various different things. But they don't look at it that way. They say, well, you know, our security policies are fine. I said, but when were they last tested or when were they last written? You know, is there a way of making sure that every year, you know, all your, tech, all your uh, access control system is, is, is checked? And then you, you make any changes to it that you needed or you need to add to it or whatever the case may be. And when you're going to completely turn your uh, organization around, what type of systems are you looking for? Because you've got to get about three or four different companies in because they'll all sell you the same product with different products. And therefore, you know, their job is to sell you their product. When if you use a consultant, he goes out there and looks what the best company is, the pricing and everything else. So we bring something in security consulting that wasn't there before. And a lot of the big companies within, let's use Ontario, a lot of the companies, security companies, they, they really just dealt with, as I said, bread and butter type of security. Now it's not like that. It's totally different. And these the managers now are highly trained. They've got good backgrounds. They've worked their way up, up the security food chain. They know what they're looking for. I mean, over the last five years, we've interviewed people for, for large corporations to be security managers, to be the CSO, whatever the case may be. And when we're asking the questions, we know exactly what the client is looking for. So we do the interviews, then we, we select, say, three people, give three people to the client, then the HR system kicks in and they interview them to see if there's a fit between the people we've selected and the company they're going to be working for. So consequently, you know, it, it's, it's a win-win situation. And that wasn't around either then. It was, you know, if the, if the guy likes you or you're a, a Freemason or you're, you're, you're whatever it was, I mean, you know, you were in and that was it. And once again, once going, going to the thing about women, I mean, you know, women have got a, 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 a critical part in security. And in the early days, that was never seen as, as a, you know, we don't want women because women can't take care of themselves. I'm not going to go up against three guys and say, look, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's the same as police officers. Women police officers have had the same problems. But now it's fairly equal. And a lot of women can now work in security and work their way up instead of just being a guard. You know, they can be, become a supervisor and then they, they become an assistant manager and then the, the good ones become managers. Uh, but a, Five, six years ago, no, that was not. Women had to fight against the security industry. Aside from the technology changes and some of the, um, the the approaches to security, do you feel like, has has the overall approach to security evolved? Like I, I talk to a lot of people and they tell me there's more of a business focus and more of a sort of engagement with the C-suite, but what has been your experience with that? Yes, <clears throat> C-suite now pay attention. Those that are fairly successful C-suites do. You know, with other people just, they don't want to know. And when you start asking C-suite, sweet questions uh they, they, they can't answer the questions because yes they're a member of the c-suite or they're even the ceo for instance and what will happen is you'll ask them a question about you know what are your security concerns well i don't know go and ask the security guards well you know you would like to think that the c-suite is aware of what their security vulnerabilities are but then you find out they don't have a security manager they have a a, a company that comes in and just does what they're supposed to do and go home and on shift. They don't even have some, believe it or not, there's some big companies that have no security infrastructure in their building, in their buildings. What they have is guards from other companies 
who come over work they're wearing the uniform of the, of the the organization they are guarding for instance and that is it and there's no rapport between the manager sorry the the the, pre the president or the ceo and the security guard because there's no one in the middle to bridge that gap from security to tell the suite what's happening and what you should do and why haven't we done this and all the other things now there's more coordination and c-suites now realize that that is an important part and when you've now got you know some some security especially chief security officers they're earning six figures you know and you're not going to get six figures unless you're highly qualified you've done all the required courses that you do to get the qualifications and you've been to a few smaller companies and slowly work you work your way up into a bigger and a larger and more diverse company so that that is happening as well now. And security is, is not what it was ten years ago. So you've also started writing your memoirs. Can you tell us a bit of, about that process? Sort of maybe sort of a, a journey of personal discovery, just through the process of putting that together. Well, for a start, I can't write my memoirs, okay, because of what I did when I was in the UK. Uh, I've done two things. I'm writing my memoirs, but I'm also writing them with a female which has never been done either. And it's a woman I've known for about 40 years. She's a PhD. Uh, she works in London. She's got her own consulting company in London. And we brought this up in a lunch about 10 years, no, about six years ago. And we started, decided to move ahead with this uh, about three years ago. One of the biggest problems I've got is all the work I did when I was in UK Special Forces is, 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 is secret. So the official secrets act kicked in. And what happens is if I have to, uh, if I want to write a memoir, I have to present my book. I have to get permission first from the attorney general in the UK. Okay. And he, if he gives his permission, which he'll, he, he will rarely not do it at that stage because he hasn't read it. He doesn't know what I said. So, so what will happen then is I will then write my book and using a woman, it was very difficult. And what takes the time is, my, my book shepherd, as I call her, she has never been in the military. She doesn't understand the nuances of military. So when I start writing my chapters, I would write chapter one. She'd guess it, she'd read it, she'd make changes, and she's doing it with my voice. She's, it's my voice that's taught, telling the story. And then she says, what's this, what's this? What does this mean? What's this weapon? And what does this? Well, you get into chapter six, when you're really getting down and dirty, when, when, I, was in the, when I was working undercover in, in Northern Ireland, uh, there's a lot of nuances that she hasn't got no ideas about, so it takes me twice as long. Instead of me just writing a book, which I do, I, I write each chapter as we go. We work out and got more and more critical as we as we got further into it. The more questions, and we've had some. I've just finished writing version 13 of chapter five, so that's 13 trips back to the UK and back to me and back and back. So all that adds up, and people who know I'm writing my memoirs turn around and say. When are we going to see it? Well, they think you just sit there and you can write your memoirs like in a, in a couple of months. Well, you can't. If I was doing it myself, maybe I could get away with that. But I've got to deal with the Official Secrets Act in the UK. I've got to deal with sending my work to a, to a female who knows nothing about weaponry, doesn't know anything about tactics and things like that. So she's putting in what she thinks. Sometimes she's very good. She, I mean, she's written quite a few books. But the big issue is she is not familiar with what I used to do either in the military or in the private sector. I wrote a story about a project I did in the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. I sent it to her. Within about an hour of her getting it, she phoned me up from the UK and she says, 
did this really happen? And I said, yes, why? It's my memoirs. Why would I lie? Because I'm not there on my own most of the time. I'm with somebody else. And she said, no one's ever going to believe this. And I said, well, I can't help that. That's what happened. So I've had to deal with all those issues. And it's taken me a lot longer. I mean, theoretically, I should be looking for publishers now. One of the problems with publishers, I had publisher meetings last year in England at the London Book Club. And what happened is the day before I was due to fly to the London Book Club, which is going to be 16,000 people there, there are publishers and there's agents, something else. That's the mecca of actually going to publish a book. And of course, they closed it down the day before I flew to the UK because of COVID. And trying to phone these people up and do a Zoom, they don't want to do that. They want to see you. They want to smell you. They want to sniff you. They want to, they want to have you in front of them in their offices whether it's in New York, whether it's in Canada, or whether it's in the UK. And that can't be done. You know, we can't do that. So that's, that's more time uh, as, as sort of slowed us down in the, in the overall process. And it's, it's difficult to find out because people want to sell books and they want you to, every chapter, you've got to kill somebody or you've got to severely injure them because that's what people want to read. Well, life isn't like that. It is if you're writing a fiction book, you know, because you can do what you say and do what you like. I mean, I'm talking about the facts of the work that I did as a special forces operator. And everyone thinks you go around the world killing people all the time. And well, obviously, you don't. You know, and even if you did, you're not going to talk about it, are you? Hence, the official secrets act. So it, it, it's very time consuming. And I'm hoping because it's a female's perspective and because uh, she doesn't understand it and she's trying to write my voice into my chapters, it's, it's going to be a good product at the end. It's supposed to be the same old book. And if you look at some of those books behind me, uh, you know, you'll see that there's lots of books there. And they've been written by guys like me, but they've written their whole book about being in special forces. Well, I was in the Marine Commandos. I was in 14 Intelligence Company. I was in the SAS. I then went into the private sector and worked in every, every war zone in, in the world. So I've got all those experiences, but when I come to write them down, I can't put every experience in, in a chapter because it's a memoir. The other problem with memoirs is the fact that if I was a, a rap star, I'd have people lining up to, 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 to publish my book. Because I'm a nothing and a nobody, why do we want to listen to what a story a soldier had to say? So consequently, it's, it's, it's going to get, it's very limited to what you can do in terms of marketing and sales. So I joined LinkedIn and I ended up with about 1,500 LinkedIn connections within about five months, five, six months. And a lot of those people were very interested in what I was doing and everything else. And I've never marketed with a company. So we don't go out trying to sell what we do. People contact us or it's through referrals, et cetera. So you get very, not lazy is not the word. You just don't go looking for business. But if a, if a project is challenging we will take that on if not we'll pass it to somebody else who, who does it and that's basically how we've worked well thank you very much for joining us today on uh, we appreciate all your insights we wish you good luck with completing your memoirs and, and hope to stay in touch thank you very much for inviting me thank you to my guest alan bell and our podcast sponsor commissionaires for more security themed podcasts visit our website at canadiansecuritymag.com i'm neil sutton thanks for listening